if Microsoft Excel scares you, <laughs> go take a class. Um, get comfortable with numbers um, because the DEI programs that are going to be successful today, tomorrow, and into the future are going to be ones that are grounded in data. Welcome to the Inclusive Leaders Podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right. So Christopher, I know you as a very experienced DEI leader, but um, for people that don't know you, could you let our listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. So um, name is Christopher Bylone. Uh, I've been leading diversity, equity, and inclusion for a while now. I uh, don't want to date myself. Um, grew up in New Jersey on a farm, went to, did my bachelor's degree at Rutgers University. Um, I have two master's degrees focused very much on social justice, right? So I spent some, before I uh, moved into the world of corporate America, I used to work in higher education and was working in student affairs, doing leadership development with most of the student organizations on campus that focused on social justice. So really creating, as I like to say, those next, next activists, you know, those who are going to go out there and create good, you know, uh, productive change in society. And then I left higher ed and I came to corporate uh, America and started doing workforce planning um, and really looking at how organizations were maximizing their workforce for productivity. And then an opportunity came along to build out a diversity, equity, and inclusion program and jumped at it because for me, it was like a coming home. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in my early years of doing social justice work. Um, you know, every path leads differently. And so it led me to workforce planning and really enjoyed that. But then I, when I had the opportunity to come back and feel like coming home to DE and I work, I jumped at that opportunity. So it's been great. I live in Connecticut with my husband and two boys, which we just recently adopted, um, you know, so, uh, you know, we chose our family, which is just great. Uh, and so just really looking forward to the conversation. Same here and congratulations on that. Um, you know, and I know you've done a lot in the realm of uh, workforce planning and DEI, but could you, or do you have any insights to share as it pertains to the intersectionality of workforce planning and DEI? Like how do these two worlds collide? Yeah, I, th I think they actually collide very nicely and are needed to collide because when, you know, when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, if an organization is not focusing on, um, you know, the, the actual diversity of your organization, right, you can make the in most inclusive organization there is, but who are you including? And so you have to use data. And workforce planning is all about data. You know, workforce planning, when you're thinking about it, it is all about who is here, what, you know, what's the capability do they bring? What's the capacity do they have? And how much productivity are they doing for our organization? And so when you, when you, 
taking that mindset and bringing that to the diversity, equity, inclusion space, you then start to realize that you need to understand who is actually in your organization. So making sure organizations have a strong self-identification program so that you know who your employ employees are so that when you are setting goals, you know that the goals are appropriate, but also you know that you probably have a path to reach those goals and then you can report on the success or not success of meeting those goals and being very transparent about that. So it's really about connecting it back to the data. You know, and so you need to make sure that um, you have a path forward that's that's grounded in 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 data. That that's really all I can I can say. Because if it's you know, yes, every DEI program needs to have strong employee resource groups, and you need to make sure that you're celebrating and recognizing significant days: International Women's Day, Pride. We're recording this uh, episode on Diwali. And so you need to make sure that you're having, you know, the appropriate celebrations for those type of holidays. However, if that's all you're doing in your DEI program, it's a facade. And so you really need to break down the data and understand what do your hiring numbers look like? What do your promotions number look like? What do your leave rates look like? And if you're not paying attention to the numbers, you could have all of these really great programs they probably won't mean anything because what is going to be the measure of your success is going to be how diverse your organization is uh, and continues to be. You mentioned something regarding self-identification. Um, from our perspective, it seems like about 50% of employees will respond to these um, surveys. Do you think that has a lot to do with the culture in the organization? Um, what processes have you seen that can help maybe raise that, that number above 50%? Um, you have any thoughts there? So honestly, it's about trust, right? The employees are, your employees are going to need to be able to trust you with this data. This is highly personal data you are asking for employees to give. Right. Yes, it's pretty like, you know, we could potentially understand what, what the gender or looks like of our organization visibly. That's not the best. That's not the appropriate way to do it. Right. Because everybody's identity is different. Um, race, ethnicity data. We have some idea by how people present, but that's not necessarily a good way to judge. Right. Um, and so you're asking people to identify in a system, especially when we get beyond gender and race. You're starting to ask about sexual orientation about disability status, um, parental status, name the disability matrix, metric that you want to analyze, and that's personal. And so you need to, the companies need to make sure that their employees trust them with that data. What are you using it for? If you're just doing it to collect and report and not taking action, then probably you're not going to see a high take up. Um, and so I think that, you know, self-ID, while it has been around for a while, it has really picked up steam over the past probably five to 10 years. And I think we're just in that evolutionary cycle of employees feeling comfortable to report 
Um, and so I think it's about, so, so when I think about how do you build trust with your employees about voluntary self-ID, it's being upfront about what you're gonna use the data for so that people know, if I give you this piece of information, how are you going to help? How, this, how is this going to help? But then also you have to make sure that people understand that this is, this is being used for a positive direction, right? We're not using this to, you know, oh, we know somebody is X, Y, Z, and so we're going to let them go, right? Like that's, that's not what it should be used for um, and could get you in a lot of legal trouble anyway, if you did. Um, and then you need to show that you're actually taking action, right? So it's about reporting on those numbers. It's about identifying where the gaps are. And then what are the actions that you're going to take? And then following up on the success or not success of those actions, right? Like we can have all of these great goals, but if we don't tell people how we're doing, um, then it's just, it's a nice, you know, statement on a website somewhere, right? So you have to you have to be accountable to the information that you're asking employees uh, to provide and and give them the opportunity to trust you. Yeah, the trust seems like it's a really important aspect of not only like the employees answering the uh, the survey, but really when it comes to the culture of the organization. Um, and you know it's interesting when you talk about KPIs. I know you can kind of get lost in the numbers sometimes. Um, so is there a specific group or a set of KPIs that you typically look for um, when it comes to DEI programming? Yeah. So if you know, I would say top line it's really understanding your gender representation, not just at the organization wide, but in your most senior roles. Um, for companies that are focused, um, you know, on the U.S., looking at race and uh, race and ethnicity data in your top leadership, um, it's interesting that there are a lot more countries that are starting to focus on racial identity. Uh, just uh, saw an article over the weekend about, um, you know, Mexico really focusing on racial identity in their corporations. Um, it used to be a country that folks would say, like, we don't have Black people. And, you know, that's not necessarily true. Um, and so the fact that, you know, society is starting to reckon with the fact that they need to talk about racial equity in that particular country um, is showing that the conversation is a global conversation. I also think when you're talking about KPIs, you, especially for global organizations, um, you need to have what I consider global consistency, local relevance. So what I mean by that is that the global consistency is going to be, we are going to have KPIs. The local relevance piece is what is appropriate for that particular country, that particular location. Um, so we think about race um, and ethnicity. The, the, the words or the categories that we in the, use in the United States are not applicable really any other place in the world, right? Looking at this from a US lens. So when you go to Latin America, well, everybody's Latino or Latina. Um, however, when you get to a country like Brazil, there's black Brazilians, white Brazilians, Asians, um, uh, indigenous populations. 
And so you need to look at the race ethnicity demographics through that lens in that country. Um, and so it's really about being poignant. Also thinking about, um, you know, your self ID, you know, how many employees are, are participating in your self ID program. Um, there's a really great kind of, I, I consider a high level formula for understanding inclusion. So it is to have a high inclusion score is having high participation rates in your self-ID program and low responses to I choose not to identify. Because the lower your rate of I choose not to identify means people are comfortable in identifying uh, their identities with you. And so while they may, there may be some issues or hot topics around being fully inclusive, they feel included enough to identify. And so to me, that is a really uh, very simple way to understand at a high level about where you are in inclusion. I'll give you um, a real life example. So a previous employer I was at um, a couple years ago, so summer of 2020, uh, we all know what was happening during that time, especially in the United States. Um, we were doing a gender equality survey. And in that survey, we were in the United States, we were asking employees to self-identify on a various array of, of identities, one of them being um, race and ethnicity. What we saw in the data coming back from that is we saw high number of people in our race category actually answering I choose not to identify more than sexual orientation or disability. And when we dived in deeper, when we looked at the actual representation of the self-ID numbers in the race categories, we had people identifying at the same rate as which we knew from, uh, from our EEO reports that we have to do every year. Um, we're equal to our white colleagues, our Asian colleagues, our Hispanic colleagues, but our black colleagues took a huge dip. But we, so when we, if we added up the number of employees that identified as black and the number of employees that I collected, I choose not to identify, practically equaled the, um, what we knew our black representation from our EEO reports to be. So that told me right there that our black employees did not feel included. And so that's a really sure way to understand uh, where your inclusion, where your inclusion scores are working, right? So, and so that to me said, okay, we need to signal and we need to narrow in our focus to talking about why do black employees not feel included? Yeah, no, I totally understand that. I think sometimes uh, people can feel tokenized as well. And it's like, hey, you know, you just want this data so you can just say you hire black people, you know. <laughs> um, I think uh, sometimes that can be a, a challenge getting that information. Um, and I know you mentioned something that you've you've seen throughout your career uh, in terms of like workforce planning and also having people essentially ascend quicker than other people do. Mm. Um, did you want to share a little bit about that in, in your experience when it comes to workforce planning and, and promotion rates? 
Yeah, so I think one of the things that uh, that we have seen, and, th and this cuts across um, all industries. Um, I mean, just last week, um, McKin uh, uh, McKinsey and Company just came out with their annual Women in the Workplace place report, and you're seeing that it's just one in four women make up a, uh, are members of the C-suite, and then that number gets worse when you talk about women of color, it's one in 20. Right, so what's happening? Um, and what I think we see uh, in the data is that there's a there's a hump, there's a bump, uh, a speed bump uh, for women coming out of the junior level management category into that first year of middle management. Um, and you know we have done a lot of work. Uh, as a society and talking about how to propel women into C-suite. But what's happening is, is we're not, we have not focused on how to get women from that junior level to that mid-level senior leadership so that they actually can get to the C-suite. Because what we're seeing now is that women actually have this, I'm generalizing here, have pretty much the same rate of getting to a uh, you know, the, the seniors uh, levels in their organization, once they get into that middle level leadership. So it's that that's where there's a kind of a cliff where you see the numbers kind of diving off. And so we need to get more women getting over that speed bump from junior level to um, that, that first rung of senior leadership in an organization so that we can have the volume we need, given that we see that once a woman is in that uh, senior level, um, senior level in their organization, she has the same uh, percentage rate of getting those next levels of leadership, right? So, but there isn't enough women in that in coming into that senior leadership level. So we need to increase the women coming from junior to senior. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, I feel like the same can or a similar um, statement can be said about other groups as well. Um, yes. But, you know, and I think one of the things that I really appreciate about just like uh, where we are as a co corporate society is there are more leadership development programs that I've seen. Um, what do you think about leadership development programs? Do you feel like they're helpful uh, when it comes to yeah, basically filling that gap of talent in that middle realm of leadership? Sometimes, but okay. I do think that there is potentially um, something that we're missing. You know, I, I've seen a lot of good leadership development programs for those, you know, mid to upper and executive uh, leaders. And they do a really good job about talking about inclusion and diversity and, you know, how are, how, what's the expectations of those leaders to create an inclusive culture. But what I think is missing is those leadership development programs for junior women and making sure, and, and, and people of color, right? So looking at that, your, that entry level professional technical, they may be a manager of individual contributors. And so you're needing them to go from a manager of individual contributors to a manager of managers. That's a different skill set, right? So what are, 
what are we doing to ensure that that level of leadership is getting the training that they need intentionally? Because when we think about how it happens organically, probably a lot of men and particularly white men are getting that training informally. And so how are we making sure that the formal training we're doing is preparing the underrepresented groups to be able to advance to those higher levels of leadership in our organization? And that's going to look different for every organization out there, but you have to be aware. And that's where you get into the numbers, right? So what do your numbers look like? There are many organizations out there who are doing great, right? They already have those programs in place and they are seeing that their junior women are getting just as promoted as, as quickly uh, as the men. But if you're not, if you're not seeing those, if you're not seeing the data telling you about those promotion rates, then you need to figure out what is the barrier that's happening in your organization for people to advance their career? Totally agree with that. Um, what do you think about, um, well, I wanted to ask you, you know, this is kind of a, maybe a personal question, but um, what has been the highlight of your career from a DEI perspective? Oh, what has been the highlight of my career? Um, so there's a couple. So um, being able to roll out a global parental leave policy, um, 16 weeks of paid leave, fully paid leave for both men and women for birth, surrogacy or adoption of a child. Uh, that's probably a big highlight of mine. Um, uh, embedding what an inclusive colleague is into a code of conduct. Um, because that really sets the foundation of who the organization is and their expectations of colleagues. So those probably would be two of my highlights of my career at this stage. I'm hoping I have a, still a very long career to go, um, but probably those two will definitely be in my retirement speech uh, when that comes many, many years from now. Game changer. I love that. Um, and so you know, as we wrap up, Christopher, uh, if there was one action you would urge our DEI leaders that are listening to take after listening to this, what would that be? So I, I've been thinking about that, that question because you sent it to me in advance um, and there's a lot, but I probably would say is um, if Excel scares you, and not meaning like Excel, like, you know, accelerating, but if Microsoft Excel scares you, Go take a class. Um, get comfortable with numbers um, because the DEI programs that are going to be successful today, tomorrow, and into the future are going to be ones that are grounded in data. And so you do not need fancy, you know, Power BI and all of those other fancy, you know, um, data you know, analysis programs. But if you can at least start being able to dump your data from your HRIS into Excel and being able to say, what is the percentage of women and how am I seeing it grow over time? If you can start to understand that, that is going to be the key of your success because then you're gonna be able to talk to your business leaders in the numbers that they understand. So you need to be a data-driven DEI professional if you are not, I feel you're not going to be successful in the long run to advance DEI in your organization and/or your career. 
Very well stated. Christopher Bylone, thank you so much for joining us for the Voices of Inclusion podcast. Um, we might need a, a part two on this, but uh, I hope you have. Robert, absolutely. Welcome welcome to come back anytime. You know, I think the work that Matheson is doing is so important and the conversation that you're driving is, is much needed. So happy to have these conversations whenever and wherever you deem appropriate. Thanks a lot, Christopher. Um, well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks for spending you time You too. With us. Have a great one. All right. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.